We are the result of the decisions that we make. Of course, there are many aspects of our lives which are beyond our control. We cannot choose the circumstances of our birth, the genetics we inherit, or the random events which inevitably affect us. No matter where you started, no matter what external forces may have altered your path, you have made decision after decision after decision, which has led to who you are today. No doubt there are some decisions you would like to have back, some of which looked perfectly reasonable at the time, yet hindsight reveals our missteps. I don't think I'm the only one who has ever made a bad decision knowing that it likely wasn't the best decision available, only to be proven correct. If not yourself, you've likely witnessed others making obviously poor decisions, yet they go ahead with it anyways. What causes someone to take up smoking, to blow their life savings, or to drop out of school? What causes us to make poor choices? Stay tuned as we examine how to make better decisions. What was the first sound you heard this morning? Perhaps it was the birds outside your window, a crying toddler, or for most, the aggressive beeping of an alarm. Whatever the noise, it marked your first decision of the day. Get up, or hit snooze and crawl back under the covers. Our first decision of the day, and how many, make a choice that they ultimately believe to be against their best interest. But that is only the first of what some sources estimate to be 35,000 decisions the average person makes each and every day. Some of these decisions have relatively little effect. Should I wear a blue shirt or the white one? When should I get into the left lane to prepare to turn? Do I eat my eggs first or my toast? Other decisions can carry little more weight and greatly affect how we spend our time. Exercising, studying, spending time with our children and loved ones. We have to recognize that these are not things that just happen automatically. These are things which we must decide to do and prioritize if we want to succeed in doing them. Deciding to skip exercising for one day likely isn't going to carry devastating consequences, but making that same decision every day can. Forgoing a healthy lunch in favor of what might be a better tasting one might not have a big effect until you keep compounding that decision every day. Splurging when out shopping or staying up late to watch a movie are similar. They can be fine decisions occasionally, but can become harmful if we find ourselves choosing them too often. When faced with unexpected circumstances, we can make decisions in a moment of poor self-control, which can have devastating effects on the rest of our lives. Quitting a job, walking out on a marriage, or resorting to violence are decisions people often, not always, but often, make out of anger rather than actually thinking them through. Then there are some of life's most important choices, including whom to marry, where to live, what type of job to pursue. How many nights sleep have been lost, either agonizing over having to make such a decision, or agonizing over having made the decision poorly? Improving at making each of these types of decisions involves the same concept. We have to determine what is most important to us. We have to establish a hierarchy of goals and ideals that define who we want to be. I say hierarchy because we have to determine several factors which are going to guide us in our decision-making. We then have to order them in terms of importance, thus a hierarchy. Before examining the life of a famous Canadian who knew what was important to him and made wise decisions pursuing his dreams and becoming tremendously successful, 
I'd like to offer you the opportunity to order our free booklet, What is a True Christian? Christianity to so many in our world today has earned a bad name. Many feel it exudes self-righteousness or that it embraces emotional sentimentality. In a world of religious deception, they, along with most of what the world calls Christianity, have not understood what it was intended to be. In reality, it is about making right decisions. At the age of nine, Chris Hadfield decided that one day he would become an astronaut. How many young boys and girls at one point wanted more than anything to travel to space? Hadfield fulfilled his dream and even became the commander of the International Space Station. What enabled him to succeed, while for so many, the thought of space travel never moved beyond a childhood dream? First, he recognized that being an astronaut was not something that he could roll out of bed in his mid-30s and just do. It would be something that he would have to take into account in every major decision leading up to that time. Business Insider details what came next. Once Hadfield had decided to pursue his passion, he made a game plan. To be an astronaut, he'd have to attend university, study mechanical engineering, get a master's degree, and become a pilot. Hadfield joined the Air Force at the age of 18, knowing the odds of becoming an astronaut were terrible. But since he loved the subject, he figured that he'd learn something every step of the way, and that he'd become a better person with every milestone. Laying out such a plan was the easy part. Over the course of the next 27 years, he repeatedly made good decisions, prioritizing his studies, sticking to his plan, and working long hours in a challenging field before achieving his dreams of breaching the Earth's atmosphere. Part of what makes him such a positive example of good decision-making is that getting to space was not the only goal he based his decisions on. Notice that he recognized that the odds were terrible. Canada didn't even have a space program when he laid out his plan. But he also gauged every major decision on achieving his goal of learning things that would lead to positive opportunities and be fulfilling to him as well as his goal of becoming a better person. How much better would our lives be if we gauged every major decision against this criterion? Will this make me a better person? Not, will this make me look like a better person? Or will this make me feel better about myself? But will this make me a better person? If you could ask 20 people what being a better person means, you might get 20 different answers. And unfortunately, it is becoming harder and harder to find common ground on the question of morality. But one trait that most of us have in common is that we fall short of what our ideal of a good person should be. I say this not out of ridicule or with the intent to elicit feelings of guilt, but as a reminder that doing better is a common goal that we should all be striving for and we should all be using at the top of our decision-making hierarchy, making it the highest level deciding factor for every decision. Career and family goals, lifelong dreams, and other directives would then make up a secondary level in our hierarchy before proceeding to short-term goals. Of course, when we look at the highest level of becoming a better person, we have to understand that morality is not subjective. If you want to learn a proven moral code which has been tested for millennia, then take us up on our offer and order your free copy of What is a True Christian? Even if you think you know what this book is going to say, I challenge you to order it and read it for yourself. I think you'll be pleasantly surprised by what you read. We're happy to send this booklet to you at no cost. Just call the number on your screen and tell the operator you would like to receive your copy of 
What is a True Christian? or order online at twcanada.org. There are many different ways of life which claim the title Christianity. What is it that truly makes someone a Christian? Call or go online to get your free copy right now. Just in case you missed our contact information, I will give it again later in the program. Welcome back. I'm glad you've made the decision to join me today. Every day we make thousands of decisions. I'm not here to tell you that every one needs to be agonized over. There is such a thing as analysis paralysis. Learning how to identify which decisions are important and then choosing wisely is a lifelong task that begins with deciding what values and goals you have and establishing a hierarchy against which you'll assess life's important decisions. Once you've determined what your priorities are, then things get really difficult. Staying with a particular plan and deciding to follow through are far easier said than done, especially when tired or when circumstances are less than ideal or when we just feel like we'd rather be doing something else. How do we make the decision to stick with our plan? How do we prevent ourselves from making decisions that we know are not in our best interest? Let's examine three keys to following through on good decisions. Develop self-control. We briefly discussed the all-too-common reality of knowing what is best for us and yet choosing something else instead. The solution to this challenge is developing self-control, otherwise known as discipline. One of life's greatest challenges is learning how to tell yourself no. Self-control means establishing boundaries for what we view as permissible and impermissible, and then abiding by those boundaries. Many portray restrictions as infringing on their ability to do what they want, rather than realizing that restrictions act to prevent those things which we know to be harmful. Jocko Willink, a former Navy SEAL commander and author of Discipline Equals Freedom, Field Manual, was recently interviewed for Forbes.com. He had this to say about the correlation between discipline and freedom. While discipline and freedom seem like they sit on opposite sides of the spectrum, they are actually very connected. Freedom is what everyone wants, to be able to act and live with freedom. But the only way to get to a place of freedom is through discipline. If you want financial freedom, you have to have financial discipline. If you want more free time, you have to follow a more disciplined time management system. This was certainly true for Chris Hadfield. He had the discipline to educate himself and choose the hard path in training to become an astronaut. He was rewarded with the freedom of traveling to space. Writing for Psychology Today, Susan McQuillan described it this way, Self-control is not about self-deprivation, and it's certainly not about punishment. But it is often about redefining what is pleasurable to you in order to keep destructive behaviors in check. It is about taking power over your own actions and learning to ignore immediate impulses, no matter how powerful they may be. In order to develop self-control, we have to examine ourselves and identify those areas where we currently lack self-control. We can then target improving those weaknesses. The first key to following through on good decisions is to develop self-control. The second is to put yourself in a position to succeed. Ever notice that seemingly small bad decisions can quickly cascade and lead to bigger bad decisions down the road? Well, we must avoid the temptation of blaming every bad decision we make on our circumstances or environment we must also learn to recognize situations where we frequently fail and actively seek to avoid or diminish those situations. 
Research has shown the immense negative impact that sleep deprivation can have on our ability to make good decisions. Compared with those who get seven or eight hours of sleep per night for a week, those who sleep only five hours a night make riskier decisions, pay less attention to negative consequences, and focus more on short-term gains. While normally we approach risk in a defensive manner, guarding against losses, sleep deprivation makes us more likely to go for the gains confidently and disregard other consequences. In other words, we're more likely to place a large bet at the roulette table and let it ride. If we find that we constantly make bad choices with alcohol, we can minimize our risk by avoiding situations which would normally lead to drinking. Likewise, maintaining good physical and mental health can aid in making sure we are in the best possible situation to make a decision. It is easier to stick with a game plan when we are feeling strong. This key will help with more than just sticking with a good decision. It also carries principles that will help you to make the right decision in the first place. Part of putting yourself in a position to succeed is recognizing when you are not, when it would be best to put off a decision until you are in a better frame of mind. This includes the need to educate yourself. If you are making a decision on something such as an important purchase, like a home or a car, switching careers, or asking someone to marry you, seek counsel. Ask for the advice of people who you have seen make good decisions. Research your various options and ensure you have the information necessary for a final decision. Our second key to following through on good decisions is to put yourself in a position to succeed. Our third key is never lose sight of the goal. One can have all the tools in the world lined up perfectly to make the best decisions imaginable, but forgetting the goal behind the good decisions is a surefire way to make poor choices. What if, after deciding at nine years old that he would one day be an astronaut, Chris Hadfield never again looked up at the night sky, dreaming of taking off beyond the atmosphere? If you want to put yourself in a position to succeed and develop the self-control necessary to make and follow through on good decisions, you must maintain sight of the goal. What good is the hierarchy of goals discussed in the first portion of this program if we lose sight of those goals? Take the time to review your priorities and to remind yourself why you chose them in the first place. Maintain focus in order to keep yourself motivated. Our third key for following through on good decisions is to never lose sight of the goal. In the last portion of today's program, I'd like to share with you what I consider to be the highest priority that I take into account when making decisions. I hope you'll take the time to call in and receive your free copy of today's featured offer. What is a true Christian? The term Christianity means so many things to different people that it has generally lost its meaning. This booklet reveals that the Bible and true Christianity guides an individual to make decisions that will always lead to better results, today and forever. To request your free copy, call the number displayed on the screen and ask for What is a True Christian? You can also order online at twcanada.org. Have you ever asked why there are so many different churches? Is the Bible really relevant? Or where is the world headed? We answer these questions and more in Tomorrow's World magazine. Call us right now or visit us online to get your free copy of What is a True Christian and free subscription to Tomorrow's World magazine. I hope you enjoy the rest of the program. Welcome back. On today's edition of Tomorrow's World, we're talking about decisions 
and how to make and follow through on good ones. At the beginning of the program, we read a quote from Canadian astronaut Chris Hadfield, who described the goals he set in order to realize his dream of traveling in space. While he recognized that the odds were not in his favor, he was also pursuing a bigger goal, which he felt the steps necessary to becoming an astronaut would help him with. He wanted to become a better person. Before the break, I mentioned that I would share with you the priority in my life which I try, to varying degrees of success, to base my decisions on. Like Hadfield, I want to be a better person. However, that can be a very abstract goal. In order to strive to be a better person, I try to emulate the instruction of the individual who for centuries has been the one who defines morality. While people may give all kinds of different definitions to Christianity, it truly boils down to this, following the teachings and example of Jesus Christ. It is not something which takes only a few hours during a service once a week, or a few moments in prayer before drifting off to sleep. The Christianity of the Bible is a way of life. It impacts every decision made. It is the ultimate key in making good decisions. The book of Deuteronomy outlines the biblical purpose of God's law. Therefore, you shall be careful to do as the Lord your God has commanded you. You shall not turn aside to the right hand or to the left. You shall walk in all the ways which the Lord your God has commanded you, that you may live and that it may be well with you, and that you may prolong your days in the land which you shall possess. A vital purpose of God's law is to help us make better decisions. I'm sure we lost some viewers at the mere mention of Christianity, or at the thought of upholding Jesus Christ as the ultimate role model. Perhaps even you bristled at hearing those statements. Allow me to make the case for the morality taught in the Bible. You've likely heard of what is often referred to as the Jefferson Bible. It is a copy of the New Testament put together by Thomas Jefferson, which removed many of the miraculous occurrences found in the text. Many point to this as an example of the Founding Fathers of the United States not being truly religious individuals, but that's a debate for another day. Few realize that what was left was a condensed moral guidebook, which would be handed out to new members of Congress for decades. It helps when you consider Jefferson's intended title for this, his second compilation of biblical passages, The Life and Morals of Jesus of Nazareth extracted textually from the Gospels in Greek, Latin, French, and English. Writing to John Adams, Jefferson described the morals taught by Jesus as the most sublime and benevolent code of morals which has ever been offered to man. Between 1904 and 1957, every new member of Congress was given a copy of the Jefferson Bible. The thinking was that no matter the individual's thoughts on the divinity of Christ, or on the miraculous instances recorded in Scripture, the morals and guiding principles found in it were morals and principles which would lead a congressman to make wise decisions. When we think of someone who is known for making good decisions, we often use that term, wise. King Solomon recognized the connection between God's way of life and wisdom. The fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom. In the free booklet we're offering today, What is a True Christian?, the late Dr. Roderick C. Meredith outlines the morality, the way of life, required by anyone wishing to truly take up the title of Christian. You must determine that, with God's help, you will never let any desires or vanities or other gods come between you and the true God. You will remember to keep holy His Sabbath day. 
you will truly honor your parents. You will not only refrain from committing murder, but will carefully guard your mind against even entertaining murderous thoughts of hatred or violence against your neighbor. You will not only refrain from ever committing adultery, but you will not even let your mind dwell on lust. You must also determine that you will constantly ask God for the strength not to steal, not to lie, and not to covet. As we will explain, it is the power of Christ in you which enables you to keep the Ten Commandments as a way of life. Does that not sound like an individual who is making positive decisions, which benefit not only himself, but all those around him? The very purpose of the laws outlined in the Bible, the way of life we call Christianity, is to grow in character, to become a better person. If there is a higher priority we could use in our decision making, I certainly can't find it. Godly morals and principles lead to making better decisions across all aspects of life. To grow in the character of God, to reflect His ideals, is to become the optimal person that we could possibly aspire to. It is not easy. Few things in life that are worthwhile are. But if you want to learn more about the Christianity described in the Bible, be sure to call and ask for your free copy of What is a True Christian? You'll be happy that you did. From all of us here at Tomorrow's World, thank you for tuning in. We hope you've enjoyed the program and that you found it to be profitable. Tune in next time as Gerald Weston, Stuart Bohovich, and I will continue to bring you wonderful news of Tomorrow's World. To learn more about today's topic, visit TWCanada.org. You can also order by calling us at 1-866-784-7895 or by writing us at Tomorrow's World, P.O. Box 409, Mississauga, Ontario, L5M0P6. Welcome to Tomorrow's World Answers, where we answer your questions straight from the Bible. Any reading of the Old Testament would reveal the importance placed on animal sacrifices. Yet very few today practice such a custom. Does the Bible indicate that animal sacrifices have been done away and are no longer necessary? The question as to whether animal sacrifices were done away at the sacrifice of Christ is a topic about which there is much confusion, often stemming from the assumption that Christ's death ended the need for animal sacrifices. The above assumption is correct as the blood of ritually slain animals cannot pay the ultimate penalty of our sin. Paul was inspired to state that clearly when he wrote to the Hebrews. And every priest stands ministering daily and offering repeatedly the same sacrifices, which can never take away sins. But this man, after he had offered one sacrifice for sins forever, sat down at the right hand of God, from that time waiting till his enemies are made his footstool. For by one offering he has perfected forever those who are being sanctified. Only the sacrifice of Christ can pay the penalty of sin, which is eternal death. While this is true, we see Paul after the death and resurrection of Christ, and after Paul was deeply converted and teaching the gospel, entering the temple to offer a sacrifice. We read of this incident in the book of Acts. 
Then Paul took the men and the next day entered the temple to announce the expiration of the days of purification, at which time an offering should be made for each one of them. We read earlier in verse 24 that Paul and the men with him had taken a Nazarite vow, which was spoken of in the law of God in the book of Numbers, the sixth chapter. This was a vow to strengthen one's humility and which involved a number of things, but also required a sacrifice whenever the vow ended. We see here that Paul, while a converted Christian, was still at times honoring the temple service. How do we reconcile these two positions? 1 John 3 verse 4 defines sin as the transgression of the law. Clearly, the keeping of the law even those parts which were of a sacrificial nature would not be a sin as long as they were done in the manner prescribed at the temple. Jesus knew and prophesied that the temple would not continue to exist. The temple was destroyed in AD 70 at the fall of Jerusalem to Rome and the temple service has not been restored to this day. Hence, sacrifices can no longer be made as they require the temple and an ordained and purified priesthood. Today, Christians do not offer sacrifices for the reason that they cannot and furthermore that the sacrifices cannot forgive sin. Even in the Old Testament, God alluded to the fact that the most important sacrifice we can give to God is a converted heart. The sacrifices of God are a broken spirit a broken and a contrite heart. These, O oh God, you will not despise. For all those things my hand has made, and all those things exist, says the Lord. But on this one will I look, on him who is poor and of a contrite spirit, and who trembles at my word. In the coming rule of Christ and his resurrected saints on the earth for a thousand years, Revelation 20, verse 4, we learn that physical sacrifices will be restored throughout that period. The prophet Ezekiel was inspired to include several chapters to describe the structure and operation of the temple in this millennial period beginning in chapter 40. People often wonder why God would restore sacrifices when a perfect sacrifice, that of Christ, has already been given. These sacrifices spoken of in Ezekiel, cannot take away sin, but as Paul explains, they act as a teacher to help us understand the cost of sin. Wherefore the law was our schoolmaster to bring us unto Christ, that we might be justified by faith, but after that faith has come, we are no longer under a schoolmaster. Sin costs, it carries with it a terrible price. In truth, the blood of our Savior is the highest price possible, and that is what it costs to forgive us if we are repentant and seek forgiveness. Having to sacrifice a bull without blemish is an expensive lesson, costing several thousand dollars today. Yet in the temple period of the past, and again as a people in the millennium learn of God's truth, this will be a reminder of the price of sin. In addition, sacrifices will provide an opportunity to thank God and praise Him. To submit a question for the show, 
email us at twanswers at tomorrowsworld.org. Be sure to watch us online at twcanada.org or by searching Tomorrow's World Answers on YouTube. Receive a free subscription to Tomorrow's World magazine, revealing God's principles for leading an abundant and happy life, while providing insight into current and future events. At our website, you can also watch this and many more Tomorrow's World programs. Call 1-866-784-7895. Write or visit us online today. This program is a production of The Living Church of God.